Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, welcome to the Hash. It's Friday here on Coindesk TV. And despite the day, we're going to get you up to speed on what's going on in the world of crypto news. And maybe we'll have even a little bit of fun in doing it. I'm Zach Seward. That's Jensen Assey. Adam Levine is with us today. We're going to dive in. Adam has the first story about FATF. What's up? First up, the uh, Financial Action Task Force, as you said, sometimes called FATF, which is a global money laundering and financial crimes watchdog, has come up with a plan to drive the, quote, timely implementation, end quote, of its global standards for crypto, a new report out this morning shows. That report showed that the group, noting that many countries have failed to implement what they think should be international norms for crypto. This goal of one set of rules for kind of the whole world is something that we hear about a lot from people who sit atop kind of the current monetary order and not without good reason. That said, Jen, why don't you start us off today? Yeah, I want to zero in on this, this call for strong crypto regulation. I think that word strong is so important in this story. And I think, you know, what we've spoken about so much is it's not necessarily strong regulation. It's regulation that understands the industry. It's regulation that is willing to be flexible as this very new industry evolves. Um, a piece in the article that I thought, I shouldn't think it's funny, but I thought it was kind of funny, is that only 11 out of the 98 jurisdictions that are part of FATF that should be implementing the travel rule have not. And if we look at that one piece of data and we look at what they're doing now to try and get all of these jurisdictions to implement strong crypto regulations, regardless of culture or other things that go into what's happening in these jurisdictions, is quite a feat, I must say. But Zach, I'll, I'll toss it off to you for your initial thoughts and then we can dive deeper. Yeah, I mean, uniting this patchwork of regulatory regimes is indeed the stated goal and is something that I think is a bit Herculean and probably unrealistic to occur with this sort of global borderless technology. It's going to be hard to get everyone on the same page because there are advantages to not being on the same page. There's all sorts of regulatory arbitrage that goes on in the space in terms of where things are domiciled, which jurisdiction you choose to play in, which rules you choose to play by. And I think the task here for FATF to establish sort of a shared understanding of how it should work is difficult, right? They've been at this for a long time, trying to apply sort of the travel rule and other existing scriptures onto how global cryptocurrency transactions should work. 
And it's a long and laborious process. And I think you're right, Jen, like hopefully there is a bit of creative thinking in applying new standards to these new technologies where they don't necessarily apply to existing standards. In some cases, existing standards are probably going to be all right. You know, there's plenty of money transmitter laws that, that map fairly nicely onto crypto stuff. There are other things that don't really apply to the world of DeFi in a meaningful way that, you know, serves the stated interests of what bodies like the FATF are trying to accomplish. So, um, you know, again, this is one of those sort of like big picture, you know, square peg, round hole stories where the impulse from the regulatory bodies around the world is to standardize, unify, get some set of rules that may ultimately, you know, never come to pass. And I think that's sort of the interesting thing is to track these conversations over time to see what actually materializes into actual regulation. But Adam, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. I'm going to toss it your way. I don't really think that they have a choice but to do this, but I think that you're right. You're, you're, the word you used is Herculean. I think that's pretty much that's the correct word to use in, in this circumstance. It's a really, really, really big lift because the incentives in the game theory really don't line up. But that's also the reason that's driving this push from organizations like the FATF is that the game theory, if they don't win on this particular battle, it gets a lot worse for them as time goes on. And they basically, things, things quickly go out of control for them. And I mean, the big challenge that they face with these rules, again, even were everybody in agreement on them, is that there's really two different places that cryptocurrency exists in practice. One is on the blockchain, where really there's no such thing as borders. There's no cashing out to dollars. There's just stuff that's on a blockchain moving around on a blockchain between people using blockchains. And then there's the on-ramps and off-ramps, where you have conversion from sort of the traditional financial world into crypto and then back out of crypto into the traditional financial world. That's the place where we've seen most of the pressure applied here. It just illustrates the challenge of trying to apply this as a standard. Because when you're looking at a lot of these transactions, the information that, if, that you would have if you were a bank that was uh, subject to all of these rules is very different than the information that you have as somebody who's just facilitating cryptocurrency transactions or has an application in which people do stuff on a blockchain, right? So that's, that's the big challenge is just like there's technical issues, there's game theory issues, but at the same time, what else really could they do? I don't see an alternative. So it makes sense, but I also expect this to fail. Jen? Yeah, I think that it theoretically works when you see that everyone is not on the same page. You say everyone needs to get on the same page because us all not being on the same page isn't working. But I don't think we're going a step further and asking, you know, why is everyone not on the same page? And are we all going to come to some kind of mutual decision in a fast enough time frame to actually address some of these problems? And so I think it's just like a cyclical issue. And for me, I think it makes sense when you get a bunch of people in the room who don't know where to start, maybe don't have a lot of information on what's going on to say, great, the first thing we need to do is get on the same page. But unfortunately, I think it's going to cause more confusion. Zach, I think I saw your hand go up. Yeah, just quickly. I mean, you talk about strong regulation. I, th I think FTX is a really powerful example, right? You have FTX Japan, which is now processing user withdrawals, right? Largely because of some of the strong regulation that was in place in Japan in the wake of Mt. Gox and a subsequent major hack in crypto history. I think it was CoinCheck. Just check me on that. So we are seeing this unfold in real time where there's a different Again, this patchwork leads to different outcomes for crypto consumers based on their national geography. And I think Japan is a really strong case for, okay, strong but uh, appropriate regulation for crypto can be a good thing in terms of protecting consumers. Adam, got to give you the last, last word, then we'll change cheers. Good luck. I wish them luck. I don't hope they succeed, but I wish them Great luck. Great last word. Good luck. <laughs> very, nice. very nice. Very nice. Moving on. All right, let's go to a story of 
the markets. Last yesterday, that was that was yesterday. Remember yesterday? We talked about Coinbase, the big exchange, rolling out its own blockchain, a layer two network called Base. Now, there already is a base token out in the market, and some clever or not clever, enterprising or unsuspecting, it's hard to say, traders seized upon this opportunity to increase the price of the pre-existing base token that is completely unrelated to base, which is the name of the layer two that Coinbase is launching, and which, by the way, doesn't have a token, at least for now. So this is a story about markets acting irrationally, rationally, opportunistically, stupidly, I don't know. But you see this stuff happen where random tokens pump on sort of adjacent but not actually related news. Let's discuss that phenomenon and more. Let's ask to Adam for this one. Yeah, I mean, it's the adjacency concept, right? It's like, well, I can't bet on this thing, but I'll bet on something that sounds similar to it. And considering that nobody actually cares about what the thing is that you're trading anyways in modern markets, it's as good a strategy as any. I mean, like the simultaneously most amazing and also most irritating way that people get rich in crypto is by doing the dumbest possible things as far as these just like speculative manias. And then it works for them, right? And it doesn't work at the end of the cycle, but you get this period of time in bull runs where it's like you've got a good 12 to 18 months where you can do some really dumb things from a trading perspective that pay off really, really well. And it just messes up the incentives all kinds. This is again, like this is a classic story of this. Nothing to do with anything except that, hey, there's some association. And if you can get there, you know, via less than three jumps, then it means that the token's going to pump. So what do you think, Jen? This is so crazy. And I'm so happy that we're not in a bull cycle where there are, you know, retail investors who've just gotten into crypto who are FOMOing into things, not realizing that they aren't other things. I'm sure maybe there are some of those people still around. But during the bull market, we saw a lot more of that. We heard a lot of really sad stories in some of the mainstream media. This, I can't even try to understand traders, let alone crypto traders. It makes absolutely no sense to me. When I read the story, I thought back to when Squid Games became super popular and all those Squid Game tokens were being spun up and traders <laughs> were just doing crazy, crazy things. Aside from this story, though, the actual base that has no token, I must note, was off to kind of a rocky start yesterday. So we spoke about that launch yesterday on the show. Zach introduced it to us. And there was kind of like a Twitter frenzy. I like to focus on the comms aspect of everything. And I thought it was like really interesting that as all of this was going on, they were changing their messaging on their website. And so here is my, I guess, the warning message I give at least once a week to all comms and marketing people. Why do we rush to meet deadlines if we're going to be changing things on the fly and get all of this negative press? And so here's another example of why people should slow down. We can launch our products and we don't have to say everything all at once. Zach. Hey, man, deadlines, they make the world go around. There's always going to be something. There's always going to be something. I mean, I don't know. I think people can look at this and be like, oh, man, people are so dumb. They like bought the wrong token, whatever, whatever. I mean, there's a lot to be said for like, yeah, that mania kicking in sort of the opportunistic impulse that you can do things in these markets in a way that maybe are less possible in real markets. That's not to say that people don't sometimes buy the wrong thing in traditional markets when it comes to equities. You put in the wrong ticker, you think you get one thing, you're getting the other thing. Whoops, it happened. Um, but here, I think you do see some of this speculative energy attach itself to uh, maybe some misguided trading or the expectation of misguided trading, given that it's adjacent to this thing. You know, we see this with like thematic bets too, right? Remember when AI tokens were popping off like a few weeks ago? And before that, like metaverse tokens were popping off when Facebook made a decision 
sometimes these markets are kind of silly and you see headlines such as this. Jen? What is the base token? Do we know? Should we just give them a little shout? What do they, what is this protocol? <laughs> Not affiliated with Coinbase. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, that's what we know. <laughs> that's it. It's its own thing. It's been out there. And hey, they, they, won the, they won the naming lottery, at least in this day, in, this, in today's episode of Crypto Shenanigans. Calling all early stage crypto blockchain and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Hash on this fine Friday. We are heading off to Nigeria, where it's days before a presidential election and the country is struggling with severe cash shortages and civil unrest. So despite all of this, people are still not turning to the national digital currency, the e-Naira. The CBDC was launched in October of 2021 and has been pretty slow to gain adoption. People are saying that there's not enough places to use it and merchants are not willing to set up the infrastructure to accept it. Zach, I'm going to kick this one off to you. Seems like an infrastructure problem and maybe a little bit of an education problem. What do you make of this? The Naira has been around for some time now. Yeah, we'll call it the chicken and the egg or the electric car problem. Without some of the infrastructure to support these things, they're just not going to hit the road in meaningful ways. And I think that's something that you see with a lot of emerging technologies is like, okay, cool. Like, do I take the leap as an individual consumer and use this thing that I may not be able to like fully use either on the road or at a store that I tend to visit? And I think that is sort of like where, you know, adoption cycles are like really interesting to study, right? Like things that become desirable and or cool often sort of kickstart these adoption cycles. And I think there is a lot of interesting research around that. You look at like the iPhone, right? I know we had this thing in the news where like the original iPhone just like sold at a crazy amount at an auction. So anyway, in terms of sort of capturing desire in some of these new products, I think that's where CBDCs are certainly going to face an uphill battle, right? Like, how do you make digital cash cool? Like, even when there is ostensibly a need for something like that, even that need isn't great enough to induce people to actually use it, right? So I think there is going to be an interesting sort of marketing push around CBDCs, whether it's in Nigeria, China, or, you know, say it's say in the EU at some point in the, in the near future. The case for getting folks to use these things, I think is going to be really interesting to see how various countries go about doing this. You know, whether it is that sort of Chinese approach, hey, you got to spend it or else it's going to go away. Or maybe there's some other sort of more uh, gentle incentives out there that'll get people using CBDCs as they roll out. Jen? Yeah, I'm going to give a little bit of historical context before I pass it over to Adam. So at the end of 2022, the outgoing president changed the currency design and there was a slow changeover that caused the ATMs to draw out. So that's why there's this cash issue in Nigeria. And Nigeria is a really cash heavy population. They use cash a lot. It's in the tens of billions that is extracted from ATMs every year. And, and they use it for things like taking taxis, going to the markets. And so there's a severe shortage. People aren't able to access food and fuel. And despite this, they're still not turning to that CBDC. Zach, did I see your hand go up? You did indeed. I wanted to sort of pause it a troll take and then toss it to Adam, right? I mean, Nigeria was long heralded as one of these big Bitcoin adopting nations where there was some of that uptick on the local Bitcoins uh, and Paxfuls of the world. Those peer-to-peer trading marketplaces saw a lot of activity in Nigeria. And there is no mention of Bitcoin 
filling this void in this story, right? It's not even on the table. So the idea that a cryptocurrency could come in and solve some of these problems that are stemming from the cash shortages, that doesn't seem to be in the equation at all. I just I want to mention that and then throw it to Adam for his thoughts on whether or not you know Bitcoin fixes this in this instance uh, doesn't seem to have much foothold. I think that until we finish this part of sort of the cycle that we are in and have been in for a long time, the opportunity for Bitcoin to actually provide some type of systemic peg doesn't really exist, right? Right now, so I mean, like you can think about money in terms of what's the worst money compared to what's the best money and what's the gradient between the two, right? So when you're looking at a national currency like the Naira, you're looking at a currency that doesn't have a great history. You're looking at a currency that's run by a government that hasn't historically done a great job of actually managing this. And so you find an economy that is at least in part dollarized, which means that people are choosing to use money that is not issued by their government, but is still found to be valued by other people who they want to trade with and doesn't have the liability of the government being able to do stuff with it, right? So you, or in terms of like change the rules on it. So you then draw back from that and you say, okay, so we're taking the government currency that already has these problems and now we're creating a version that has more surveillance characteristics and that has the ability for people. Because again, once, once you pull your money out into cash, you have the cash, right? You have the cash. Government doesn't know what you do with it. Government isn't watching what's going on with it. They can't do anything to the cash in your hand once you already have it unless they change the whole currency. Once you get into the central bank digital currency side of the arena, it's not really true. And so that's kind of the big challenge around there. So right now on the kind of the best money that exists out there is the dollar and worse monies are these national currencies that don't have a great history. In the future, the expectation on my side remains that the dollar will increasingly be recognized as being just as problematic as these other currencies. It just has better fundamentals today because it still is the global reserve currency. So the question for Bitcoin is a lot less about can Bitcoin solve problems today while we're still in this transition? Or does Bitcoin offer an alternative to something that is effectively the next iteration of the dollar issued by another country that will inevitably abuse the system and then blow up the money for the entire world as has happened over and over and over and over and over again throughout history? That's where Bitcoin comes in. Uh, it's definitely a speculative use case, but it's an important one. And it's one that, again, like when we see turmoil in currencies, especially in the dollar as we get closer to that. But, you know, even just in kind of these other nations around the world, that's the instinct that you're seeing. That's the urge. It's that our money sucks. We have no choice but to use this. We would like something better. And there will come a time when there will be a choice. It'll be interesting. Uh, Jen. Yeah. And I think another roadblocker for crypto that was mentioned in the article, especially for Nigeria, is internet access and smartphone access, right? So to use the Enaira you need to have a smartphone, you need to have internet access. And there were some numbers mentioned in the article that I think it said between 25 and 45 million people in Nigeria have a smartphone, but the population is a population of 219 million. And now if we compare that to, now I don't know how many uh, people are unbanked in Nigeria or what percentage of the population, but if we compare that to people who have bank accounts in a lot of African countries, you know, you can send micropayments to people using a regular feature phone and an SMS. And so I think this like infrastructure thing is something that we're going to have to see evolve if we want crypto to be adopted in places like this. But Zach, I'll give it to you for last words. I mean, good luck. That's the last word of the day. I got I to gotta call it. back to, uh, to Adam on that last one. We got to keep it pithy on these last <laughs> words. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to bounce past it right back to you. All right. We are heading off to the metaverse. It's been a little while since we've done a metaverse minute.
We got to get Adam on there. Adam's on the show enough now. <laughs> it's my call to control to get Adam on the metaverse minute. All right. A senior European Commission official said that the EU needs to consider issues like non-discrimination, user safety, and data privacy when considering how to regulate the metaverse. The bloc wants to avoid mistakes it says were made with internet policy in the past and ensure values like inclusion, respect of privacy, and equality are upheld. Adam, I'm going to toss this off to you for the first comments. I wrote an op-ed about this for Coindesk probably like six months ago now, and people hated it. They did not agree with me. They thought there's no <laughs> place for real world laws in the digital world. They thought I was pretty much stupid. So what do you think? <laughs> well, I don't think it's a stupid perspective to have. I think that it's important to acknowledge the choice that exists when you're looking at new technologies that offer new kinds of spaces and new kinds of opportunities that don't previously exist. Again, the challenge around that is that if what you want is certainty about what will occur, then you basically need to put rules in place that prevent anything from occurring that you don't want to have happen. But a lot of times, things that you don't know that you want to happen are also blocked by that, right? New technologies that could exist but that never do exist because the rules don't allow for their development or disincentivize people from working on those problems. This is a real issue. I think the question for me is, will the metaverse matter as much as the internet does? And I think that today, it's hard for me to say yes to that. But I, I always like to think back to, to Paul Krugman, the uh, noted economist, so-called, who notoriously said in the late 90s that the internet will have the same impact roughly as the fax machine and that you just shouldn't really worry about it. And I love making fun of that guy for that. So it's hard for me to be like, yeah, metaverse isn't going to matter. I don't know if metaverse is going to matter, but I do think that there's both a place for rules like this, and also there's danger in, in being too heavy-handed when it comes to rules like this, because you can wind up missing out on quite a lot and some significant advantages. So that's me. Zach? I like seeing these EU headlines. I think the EU is actually thinking creatively about these new technologies, largely because they kind of missed out on Web2, right? Like, if you look at where all the tech innovation took place in the last 20, 30 years, it's the US, right? That's where all the giant big tech companies are. And I think the EU kind of realized like, oh, we kind of messed that up. So if you looked at some of their regulatory regimes, especially around cryptocurrency and Web3 with Mika, some of that stuff is quite thoughtful. They're saying, okay, we figured out how to regulate CFI. We don't really know about DeFi yet. So we're going to like pump the brakes on that, figure it out some more, and then get back to you. We're not going to rush to conclusions on this. And I think it is cool to see these people talk about the metaverse in similar tones. These are absolutely conversations that should be had. People's virtual safety, right? It's not like bodily safety, but there is the potential to feel assaulted, harmed in these virtual environments. And I think obviously there needs to be some protections around that. And that's what is being voiced here. How do we sort of bake this into the equation? Should metaverse ultimately end up being that next version of the internet that we're all using on a daily basis? So anyway, I see the US situation now and I look across the Atlantic to the EU and see some of these maybe more nuanced conversations emerge. And I sort of feel heartened that there maybe is a path forward for some of these emerging technologies where they can be regulated in a more thoughtful way that also supports some of the innovation and, and potentially for the EU, capture some of that innovation in a way that they hadn't been able to capture it with the last wave of emerging technologies. But I don't, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit big picture. I'll toss it to Adam. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'd push back a little bit on that just insofar as if you look at, again, like the early days of the internet, the U.S. passed a law that included Section 230 in it. Section 230 notably is 29 words or something along those lines. Um, 26. And 
that was what it took, right? Like it didn't take thoughtful considering, you know, like nuanced rules. It took something that was like very broad and that provided enough space that you could do stuff that wasn't anticipated under the law with it. Now, personally, I think at this point, Section 230 in the U.S. has been stretched far beyond kind of what it actually was intended for because there's a lot of power in big tech, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't change the fact that accommodative frameworks that encourage innovation are actually, I think, better served if they're really general, really clear, really general, and leave lots of room for that. So I wonder when I look at these EU rules, whether or not, I mean, like uh, with the EU, it's interesting, right? Because you're effectively saying, all right, instead of having to get licenses and figure out how to make this work in all of these countries, you just have one block to do. So that is a substantial advantage that it has. But still, the complexity and nuance that comes into these, I just think that you wind up leaving a lot of innovation on the table. So I'm curious to see where kind of this next leg of things does wind up centering. But they're good points altogether. Jen, what's the last word? Good luck. There we go. Good luck we did it. you. We did it. We did it, folks. We did I'll it. Take it. Amazing. That was beautiful. All right, that's it for the show today. We're wrapping there. We're not going to rush to end it. It's Friday. It's pretty nice out, at least where I am. Hopefully you're having a good one as you enter the weekend. We're The Hash. You're watching us on Coindesk TV. Maybe you're listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. That's cool also. A lot of good stuff there. Check it out. Coindesk.com. It's still Biddle Week. A lot of good content over there. If you're interested in the more technical side of things, go read some of those stories. And I'm sure we'll see you soon out there. Uh, I'm Zach Seward. That's Jen Sanasi. That's Adam B. Levine. We'll talk to you later. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.